0: Well, if you have your Bible, open to the book of Psalms, chapter 11. And this morning is a a message that I gave last Sunday night, and uh, only a handful of you were there, so I get to repeat this. Um, But the reason why is because I think the information that is here is really crucial for the time in which we have and the hope is is that we could bring some unity back to uh, our minds, back to our church, back to um, maybe even our country in, in how we should think and how we should think as Christians as we go to the polls, as we go this week, or maybe you've already been, um, and how do, how do we process this divide that we have? Because it seems to be that we have a time in front of us that is so divided Uh, At least in my lifetime, I have never really witnessed this kind of divide. So is there a way in which we can bring some unity back to the situation? And I think think there is. I think there is. But I want to start here in Psalm chapter 11, verse 3. And also another caveat I need to give is if this is your first week here, um, this is not the usual Sunday morning in in what I usually teach. And so uh, take this as an anomaly to the norm. So look at, look at verse 3 of Psalm 11. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What are the foundations that are currently on the table for us? What are the foundations of which... Um, are possibly being destroyed. These are questions that really, really we need to be asking ourselves as we think about political matters, as we think about our culture, what's around us, what's been happening. What are the foundations that seem to be eroding away, and this is not just this year that this has started to happen, but over the last several years, decades, that this has started to happen. Well, in order to deal with the the idea of foundations, we need to talk about a a big theological word called epistemology, epistemology, and so there's a spelling for you, and also kind of the definition, it's the study of knowledge, the study of knowledge, and it's the theory of knowledge, especially with regards to its methods, validity, and scope. So a, a fancy word, epistemology, simply means worldview. Now, you've heard of that word, I know. Worldview. So the, the foundation that we need to talk about this morning to get to the divided issues that we face is the worldview in which we hold to. Now, every person makes truth claims about themselves, about the world, about the universe and the working of these things, make truth claims about their God. Um, now, the the issue that we face is, well... Okay, we all make these kinds of claims, but what's the standard that we're using for those truth claims? What's the epistemology that we're basing these things on for whatever issue, whatever circumstance that we find ourselves in? What is it that determines what's good, what's right, what's bad, what's wrong, what's true, what's false? What is the standard we are using? And so, whenever we talk about epistemology or worldview, and your worldview has brought you here today, what is the standard? What is the standard that we should live by? Now, the, the question of what is the standard brings us to other, other situations and circumstances where we look at them and go, okay, well, this is a true thing about this or a false thing about it. But this gets to another question of how do you know that you know? How do you know that you know? Have you asked yourself that question about what's true, what's false, about religion, about your politics, about anything in life? How do you know that you know that you're right or that you're wrong or that somebody else is right or somebody else is wrong? How do you know that you know? So this morning I want to talk about four epistemologies, the, kind of the main The big four epistemologies that are there in our world today and that people are using. So how do you know that you know? Well, let's look at the first one, revelational, a revelational epistemology. Now, what does this mean? Well, as Christians, we should have a revelational epistemology or a worldview, meaning that our understanding of the universe, of what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, what is good, what is bad, is based upon Not our own self revelation, but the divine revelation of God from God to us, that we would then know what is good, what is right, what is bad, what is wrong, what's true, what is false. So it is not only dealing with those issues, but also, and I think most importantly, who God is. How do we know who God is? Is it just, just my own understanding, my own um, you know self-focus and meditation and reflection, or is it something that has been given to me by God? Yes, it's from Him. It's this worldview that has been given to us. our epistemology has been graciously given to us from our divine creator. and he, the creator of all, has blessed us with His. His wisdom. He has blessed us with a book in which we can read and we can study and we can learn. We can gain not only knowledge about ourselves, about our world, but about him. And so our worldview should be standing upon the foundation of a revelational epistemology. A second epistemology that is used is rationalism. Rationalism is this idea of uh, using only the human ability to reason or their logic uh, and that's what's used to determine what's right and what's wrong so it's just my reasoning just my logic that that brings me to the point of this is what's right this is what's wrong so rationalists use reason as the standard the standard for what's good what's bad is their own view their own reasoning so if if I can't think rationally or logically about this, if this doesn't fit inside of my ration, inside of my, my reasoning, my logic, then it must not be true. And this is how a rationalist would think, using this worldview. Now, as Christians, we should employ logic. We should employ using reason. This is something that we are told to do. The Bible tells us to use our minds and this is something God has given to us. But our foundation should not be upon rationalism. It should be upon a revelation that has been given to us. So that being our foundation, we then use ration, our rational thinking and our logic to make arguments, like what hopefully I'm doing today. The, the third one here, empiricism. Empiricism, by definition, is knowledge comes only or primarily from sensory experiences like science, okay? like empirical uh, evidences that are there. And so whenever we talk about science, it's, well, the, the discoveries that are there, the data, the facts, the evidence, the observations that are made, this is what defines right and wrong. This is what empiricism is. But simply using these things, using the facts, using the data, using the evidence, using the observations, if we only use those things... They cannot define meaning. They, they just can't do it. Without God's definition of those facts, of those observations, empiricism cannot give meaning in and of itself. It doesn't have the ability to do that. All it can do is say, I don't know, these are the facts. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. It, it can't define anything. It can't do that. And really what we will find is any worldview is going to pull from or rob from or be a leech to a revelational worldview, even though it doesn't want to claim a revelational worldview. And empiricism is is a good example of that. It cannot explain anything in and of itself. It has to rely upon something other than itself to define the meaning of things. So as Christians, we should use evidence, the Bible tells us to do this, And use the facts, use discoveries, use these things, these empirical things to point to the truth of who God is, the the truth of the gospel. We we use those facts, we use those evidences inside of or on top of the revelation that has been given to us. So rationalism, empiricism, in and of themselves are not healthy worldviews to have. They have to be based upon something other than themselves and that would be a revelational worldview. Now the fourth one that we have here is skepticism. And it is what it sounds like, that you're just skeptical. Skeptical of what? Well, skeptical of the possibility of knowledge. Well, not just objective knowledge in general, but can objective knowledge actually be attained? Can it actually be something that that we, we can know for certain? Does it really exist? Does it not? And this is the skeptical view that so many people have today. So much of our culture is driven by a skeptical view of all things. Not just a skeptical view about the Bible or about God, but really about any, anything and everything. Now, let me, let me give you a visual aid here to help you understand what skepticism um, will turn out in its worldview. Here is a, a parable from ancient India really probably before 500 BC, but this is the first recording at 500 BC, and it's, it's maybe this, maybe you've seen this before, it's this elephant, and you have these six guys that are all trying to describe the elephant based upon what they're feeling, what they're touching. They're all blind, they can't see, and so wherever they're at, whether it's at the trunk or it's at the side, they're trying to describe what they're feeling, what what's in front of them, and... Obviously, we see the picture well it's an elephant, but you know they they're so close to it, and all they can describe is what they're feeling, what they're what they're next to. And this is really based upon a skeptical worldview. And this is how so many people and even some Christians say, well can we really even know who God is? Can we really even know the Bible?" And they take this kind of approach saying, well you know it's just you know there's all these different religions and and just this one big God, and we're all kind of feeling a different angle, different way. and So, so can it be that we just, don't, we just don't know? Well, that would be possible if everybody was blind like these six guys. But the reality is, is that we're, we're not. We have eyes. We can read a book that makes some very definitive and very narrow claims about who God is and who Jesus is. And so, applying this idea of a revelation that's been given to us to this idea, this idea of skepticism, we would say, well, looking at this picture, we could instantly say, well, that's an elephant. We could tell these six men that are not seeing clearly because they can't see that it is an elephant. But what if, what if the elephant spoke? What if the elephant said, I'm an elephant? I'm not a rope. I'm not a tree. I'm not a spear. I'm not a rug. This is what we have from God. He has spoken to us. He has spoken to us by his word. He has given us something that was not something that we deserve, but out of his grace, he has spoken to us. And so we do not need to rely upon a, a skeptical view of the world or skeptical view of the Bible. And when people start to operate from anything other than a revelational epistemology, they will end up in a ditch. And I think this is what we have in front of us today. A famous theologian and apologist, uh, Cornelius Van Til, he wrote this. He said, without the interpretation of the universe by man to the glory of God, the whole world would be meaningless. Meaningless. Our worldview must be focused on the glory of God in all things. And this is what the Bible tells us to do. So, so our focus should be to focus on the glory of God in all things, including Politics. Now, the moment we move off of this point and we, we try to make sense of other things in the world, maybe it's governments, maybe it's our own life, maybe it's God, and we start to try to view other things off of this point of God's glory in all things, we'll, we'll not really have many answers. We can't really define many things because we've moved off of really the central point of all of this world that is, God's glory. So, in the realm of politics today, we hear a constant message and an attack by some that, well, God talk, religious talk, a Christian worldview just shouldn't be in, in the public view. It just shouldn't be talked about. And we, we see this. This is front and center. We, we see this put on TV, on radio. We see things like Supreme Court nominees that are questioned about their religious beliefs and condemned for holding any sort of religious belief, especially a Christian worldview. But what the truth is, is that if there is any worldview that does not base itself on a revelational worldview, meaning that there is a creator who has determined what is right, what is wrong, he has spoken, it will find itself ultimately in the end of meaninglessness. It will mean nothing. All of these other worldviews, they have no legs to stand on. Again, they they beg, they borrow, they steal from a revelational epistemology that's been given to us. Everything that we have, the way that we live our lives, it's, it's not based upon subjectivity. It's based upon the facts that God has told us, the truth that God has given us. And if we allow ourselves to wander into these other, these other epistemologies, other worldviews, then everything becomes subjective and we start defining things based upon what we feel or what we think, what we can rational, uh, our rational minds can come to or what the evidence brings us to, the facts leads us to. And this is why we have evolutionists that talk about the earth and all the things that they can't really seem to wrap their heads around of the earth and say, well, I, I, we don't know why that's an anomaly, we don't know why this is happening, uh, we can't explain those things that we've dug up. And the reason why they can't is because their worldview does not allow space for that. But we have one that does. They don't have a worldview that will allow for things that the Bible has already clearly told us and shown us that these are evidences for a creator God. So when we hear politicians, activist groups, or really anybody else that makes truth claims... And they don't have a revelational worldview. What we find is that they make truth claims that they have no, no foundation for. Let me point you to another passage of scripture. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, these sound to be contradictory, but really what they do, they explain each other. And this means that a fool, which the Bible would define as anybody that would say there is no God. So the Bible would define who a fool is. And this means that a fool will wanna, want you to play their foolish games and, and ask questions and, and present uh, straw man you know, ideas in front of you, trying to get you to to play their foolish games. But verse 4 tells us not to fall for that, not to fall into that trap. But verse 5, verse 5 teaches us that when a fool says something foolish, we should point out just how foolish that really is. So let me give you a real-life shining example that we currently have in our culture right now, and that is the BLM movement, or the Black Lives Matter movement, which states on their website that they adhere to a skeptical epistemology. Now, they don't say that specifically, but what they do say is that they're Marxist. And Marxists believe that we're all just globs of goo in the universe. We're all just pieces of matter that swish around in this this universe. And there's no purpose. There's no reason. There's there's nothing besides just the matter. And this is where we should insert the application of verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, if we apply this principle of verse 5, we can ask a question to somebody that is in support of this. And ask the question, well, why do black lives matter if nothing in the universe has meaning? If all we are is just matter, why does the matter matter? How does your worldview have any legs to stand on in the realm of a skeptical Marxist idea that we are just globs of goo? It can't answer the question. The worldview that they would lean on, that they would say they stand on cannot answer this question, but we have one that does. We answer the question, "Why do black lives matter or? Babies' lives or cop lives or you name the life. Why do any lives matter? Because God said so. Because God has proclaimed it. That's why. We don't stand upon our own principles that we've created. We stand upon the principle that God has given us. We don't don't make claims like this. We only make them because God has told us. The only reason why our laws or any really social programs make sense in, in why they can operate is because of a revelational worldview. If we, if we get rid of that, if we abandon a revelational worldview from God, none of these things make any sense, and there is no reason why we do anything good. There's no reason for you to do any good for your neighbor. If all we are is just some goo that made it through the zoo to you, then why, why does it matter? Nothing matters. And any other worldview besides a revelational worldview cannot stand, it cannot answer these key questions. Now, one of the key aspects of our worldview, a revelational worldview, has to do with our loyalties. because, Because we believe that God has given us a revelation, it then should determine where my loyalties lie. Our loyalties should not lie to a party, person, a system, but to Christ alone. This is where our loyalties should lie. As sinful people, we're prone to selfishness. We're prone to misplace our trust. We must guard our hearts vigilantly and violently against wandering away from Christ alone. There is no system. There is no person. There is no party that deserves our loyalties. It is only him. He is king. Now, how might our loyalties be found out? How might your loyalties today, this morning, be found out of where your loyalties actually lie? Well, it could be something like this. For instance, claiming that a person, a party, a system of government is God's party, God's person, God's system. Or saying something like, well, this is God's man or God's woman for the office. Or the person God has called or appointed to lead our country. Making statements like this, they're they're dangerous and they're really foolish because some would think that God is endorsing this person's statements and actions, which is not always true. Statements like this do have some truth. They do have a little bit of truth in there, but not, not many people really mean them in this way, in that direction. They really mean something else. So here's a couple questions. Has, has God appointed all authorities? Yes. Does God endorse all authorities as holy and righteous? No. Does God appoint rulers as judgment upon people? Yes. We see this through the book of Judges. We see this in the Kings. We see this in the Old Testament. One example is King Saul. He was the first king of Israel. He was exactly what the people wanted, and the people got exactly what they wanted. The reality is that all parties, persons, systems of government, they have flaws and tend towards sinful behavior. Amen? They're all broken. All of them are. Why is this? Because all of this world, all of this universe is broken. How do we know that? Because God said so. Because God told us. God has revealed it to us. He has revealed it to us that our fallen nature, it is broken, it is depraved, it, it is wretched. And this is why we should be so cautious about how we speak about politicians or political parties or systems of government. We tend to turn a blind eye to the sin of people that we like. I don't know if you do this in your home, right? And usually this doesn't happen in the home, it usually happens at like somewhere else, right? You usually don't get along with your family as well as you do with other people, I don't know why, but... We, we turn a blind eye to the people that we like or that we're, we have an, some sort of attraction to. But the people that we don't, we, we microscope that thing, don't we? We examine every little flaw and we amplify it as much as possible. And this just shouldn't be practiced. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Because we have this tendency to only see what we want to see and we judge people based upon you know, our, our allegiances, our loyalties or what we're familiar with or comfortable with, We need to be constantly checking our heart, constantly checking our loyalties, constantly be checking, am I doing what Jesus is saying not to do? Am I looking at somebody else's sin that's not like me, that has a different view than me? And am I highlighting that when I shouldn't be? And I have sin in my own own life. Now you've probably heard the term rose-colored glasses. And a lot of times we, we look through our world with these rose-colored glasses, and we, we view maybe our party or a candidate through these glasses, and then we, we put on another pair of glasses for the other party, the other candidate. And they're not rose-colored, they're dark-colored, and all we see is how evil, how awful, how terrible, whatever words you want to use to describe them, and we demonize the opposition. And this just shouldn't be the case, and Matthew 7, 3 through 5 is teaching this. Now, one thing about this passage that people misunderstand is... They forget verse 5. Don't misunderstand this whenever we think about our worldview. Look at verse 5 again. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus is not teaching that, well, people can just do whatever they want. He does not teach that here, does he? What he is teaching is that first examine your own actions, examine your own words, examine your own life, Take that log out of your head, you hypocrites, and then you're going to be able to deal with somebody else's sin very closely and surgically. But you must deal with your own. So Jesus is not saying, well, you can just, you know, be free, do whatever you want, just anarchy all over the place. No, that's not what he's teaching at all. He's saying deal with your own sin and then you can approach others in dealing with their sin. So we are supposed to correct people. Jesus is teaching that here. We're supposed to correct people when they're living outside of God's commands. This is what we have from the very beginning of our Bibles through the very end. Yes, we're, we're supposed to be guiding people back to what has God said. What is the revelation that we have been given? This is where we point people to. And so we need to call sin what it is. Sin. We need to be the first to identify our own sin, to confess our own sin, to point out our own sin. And then, then we can lovingly, humbly approach somebody else with their sin. Now, this leads to a couple other questions about sin specifically. One, are there degrees of sin or are all sins equal? Well, let's, let's take each of these kind of separate here. All sin deserves and demands eternal punishment. We see this from the Bible. All sin, it deserves and demands eternal punishment. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17, then chapter 3, 1 through 6. We see this in Romans 1.18. We see this in Romans 6.23, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, James 2.10. All sin, it is serious. All sin is damning when we commit it against God, all of it. It It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it was. All of it is against God. Why is this such a great offense? Because of God's holiness, who he is. Because he is so holy. Any offense against him is the greatest of offenses because is there anybody else above him? No. There's no other king, no other authority. There's no other creator. There is only one God. When he says, I am who I am, there's, there's no room for anybody else. There's no other descriptor for who he is. He is who he is. He is holy. And this is why we need a redeemer. This is why we need Jesus Christ, because we cannot be holy. He demands holiness. As we heard from 1 Peter this morning, we have to be holy. How can we be made right? How can we be made whole? We we have to have someone else. We have to have a perfect sacrifice. We have to have one that is, is pure, that is holy like the Father is holy. And it's based upon the righteousness of Jesus that we can be now seen as righteous before God. Now, although all sin against God will be dealt with, with either the sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the the willing sacrifice of God, or you yourself are going to deal with your sin for all of eternity. Either way, your sin will be dealt with. All of your sin, it demands eternal punishment but scripture also talks about degrees of sin degrees of sin depending on context on the intention the person committing the sin and the sin's overall effects effects really into the people around them and into society so all sin is not equal in relation to ourselves and to others now the, there's a couple of examples I want to share with you. One, the Old Covenant Law and punishment. Whenever we look back through the Old Testament and we we read the law that is there, we also find not just the law given, but the punishment that's attached to it. And there's varying degrees of law given, and then the punishment that equates to whenever the law is broken. So <clears throat> there's differing sacrifices for those offenses. We see that there's differing consequences for intentional and unintentional sins. We see this out of Leviticus 4 and Numbers 15. Another example of that, the fact that not all sin is equal in relation to ourselves or to others is whenever Jesus is teaching on anger and lust. Again, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, and connected to Matthew 7 as well. When Jesus teaches on these two things in Matthew 5, he, he also taught that he came to fulfill all of the law. But whenever Jesus encounters people that have broken the law, how does he deal with them? Mercifully. He's very merciful toward them, very, very uh, uh, gracious toward them and loving toward them. And so why is Jesus not holding the line there? Well, there's reasons for that, but also what we find in regards to Matthew 5, when Jesus talks about anger, when Jesus talks about lust, and he talks about the law of God, and when that law is broken, it's not just external things that break that law, but it's internal. It's the heart. And so what God sees is the the offense of the heart, not just the offense of the hands or of the eyes or of the feet. So yes, there's an external commitment to sin, but there's an internal commitment. But being angry with someone and then murdering someone physically in the sight of God are the same thing, but not the same whenever we talk about society, whenever we talk about um, the offense that would happen among us. They'd be obviously greatly different. And, you know, you don't, you don't do this with your children. Say, well, you hated your brother, so you need to be put to death now. Right? I, I'm, if we practiced that in our house, we wouldn't have any kids. So we, th- we don't apply this, and this is not applied Throughout the Bible, this is not how it's, how it's treated. This is not how Jesus is treated in Matthew 5. That's not the argument that Jesus is making. He's saying that you have this idea of the law, but God sees, sees the heart where all this comes from. We talked about Mark chapter 7, that every, uh, where, where does all these external offenses come from? It's inside the man. It's in him. This is where the offense comes from. But there is a difference in society and into the civil law of how these things play out and how the punishment should play out. Another thing, another example of this is I think church discipline that we see out of Matthew 18 and Jesus is teaching there in 15 through 20. Jesus teaches that there's a progression with the offenses, the progression of discipline that happens. So if somebody has, there's an offense, something has happened, a sinful thing has taken place. You go to them one-on-one. If they repent, everything's restored. It's brought back into right, right standing. If not, then it progresses to a different level of discipline. And I think, I think James picks up on this idea in James chapter 1, verse 15, where he writes, and you, you know this verse, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there's a progression from the desire to sin to death. I think this is the same thing Jesus is dealing with in the idea of church discipline and how that happens. Is there repentance? Is there not? And, and the, the increase that takes place. So the degree of sin, it depends on the context, the intention, the person committing the sin, and the sin's overall effect to maybe the church, maybe to the family, maybe to the society. And this is how all governments have operated at some level. Not perfectly by any means, we've already established that. But this is how they have all functioned. And this is how the Bible deals with this idea of civil law and the application of these things. So here's my conclusion from that is if there are degrees of sin as they relate to us and others, then this should be a guide for us to evaluate a candidate or a platform. So let's take that principle and then apply it, apply it to what we see from Scripture. Now, because we should have a revelational epistemology, our thinking about social, civil, moral, political issues, it should be based upon the revelation that's been given to us. Again, not rationalism or empiricism or skepticism, but a revelational worldview that's been given to us. So let's apply that to two categories, convictions and clarity. Convictions and clarity. So here on the screen, you have these two different categories, and I'll explain the third one down in the corner. And this one side, convictions, and there's just a few random things I threw up there. Uh, gun rights, Social Security, property tax, energy, health care, unions... These are, I think, things in which the Bible speaks to in a very broad sense, not very specific, very broadly, and so we would label, I would label those as convictions that we would hold to. I would say everybody in this room has probably differing convictions on maybe all of those items that are there. And again, this is a very short list. Now, the other side is clarity. And I just gave you again a short list of things that I think the Bible is really clear on abortion, gender identity, marriage, and then there's this other uh, this other group here uh, under clarifications. Now these two things that are there, capital punishment and care of the poor I'll explain in a second. Now whenever we think about convictions and clarity, one one group, the clarity issues are ones that we we know the Bible to speak very clear on and very Pointed to, very specific about. The others we're not going to find pinpoint things that it talks about, like the example of energy. Uh, You're not going to find a Bible verse about nuclear energy. If you do, you probably got the wrong Bible. But you're not going to find anything really that specific in there. Are you going to find maybe some ideas, maybe some very broad thinking about how we should think about energy and our environment, our world? Yes, you can find those things, but specifically, no. Now, to these other, the other side of the of the categories, clarity, I think we find these things to be very clear, very clear in Scripture. And the last two things that I, I gave there, I think need a little bit of clarification because there's several of those things under the clarity category that we're going to find things like capital punishment, like caring for the poor in Scripture that need a little bit of clarification whenever we talk about them, whenever we... Hold a conviction about it too. Because the Bible does speak about these things, like capital punishment. The very beginning of the Bible, God established capital punishment when He said, What? To Adam and Eve, In the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. That was the death penalty, right? Now, if we go farther through the Old Testament, we see capital punishment is put in place for several different other reasons. And even into the New Testament, Romans 13, Paul talks about the, the authority of the government, carries the sword, referencing capital punishment or death that they can bring um, to you know, fight for, for righteousness and, and uh, curb evil. So we see capital punishment playing out uh, across the Bible, but very differently depending on the cultural context in which it is in. But it is a truth, it is something very clear God has spoken about. Also, caring for the poor, another application to that in the theocracy of Israel. There was things set up through the government uh, for the care of people, but there's also a, a principle given to individuals to care for the poor. Then we get to the Roman uh, New Testament authority, there's really nothing there in the government of caring for the poor And then we get to our world today in things that are put in place by the government. But the principle that is not lost is the the, the personal principle of caring for the poor. So, again, whenever we talk about those issues, we need to be really clear what what we're meaning, what we're talking about when we deal with those, I think, clear principles, clear things that are taught and how we should care for the poor or what we should think about the death penalty. And... They, I don't think they fall under the conviction side of things. So in these two categories, and I try to just boil this all down for my own simple mind, but also to maybe to help you this morning, into two priorities, priorities in voting. I think number one should be, and I think you would agree, clarity issues should be the number one priority. If I know this is exactly what God has thought, if this is what he has said, if I, if I don't have to... Wrestle with this because it's right there in Scripture. Okay, this, this should be my number one priority. Then we get to convictions. Now, we can be all over the map with convictions, but we shouldn't mingle these two things together and say, well, aren't these the same thing? They're not. The Bible doesn't speak of them in that way. And just because you're really passionate about something doesn't mean it carries the same weight as something else. Also, just because you become emotional about something doesn't mean that you're right about it. And it doesn't mean that somebody is wrong about it if they are emotional about it. My purpose is to try and give you something objective to work from and not just simply leave you to your own personal convictions and say, vote your conscience. People's conscience are jacked up. People have seared their conscience with their own sinful ideas and their selfishness. And so is there something objective we can work from? And I say, yeah, these these two things. The clarity of God's word. God has spoken. That is spoken. And so we can base our, our views upon the clear issues. Let's take that as priority number one. Now, if if we have two people that are clear in, in on these two or on these multiple clarity issues, and they're very even on that, then we can go to the second priority, I think, of conviction. I don't think we have that situation today. But one of the best ways to know how to vote is to know your Bible. How should I vote, Pastor? Know your Bible. If you know God's word, I think you will find things are really clear. Some things are abundantly clear. And the Bible speaks to some of those issues very clearly. And then we have, again, that other category of convictional things that, well, we can, we can debate those. We can talk about those. We can pray through those. We can argue back and forth as friends about those things. But we should not. We should not read those, those clear things in Scripture and say, oh, well, they're kind of like the, the convictions. They are not the same thing. So let me give you some questions to ask in regards to this. Does the Bible speak to this specific issue or is this my own conviction? Great question to ask yourself. Whatever that issue is, whatever that pops to the top of your mind when you talk about politics, does the Bible speak specifically to that? Does it not? Then if it does, then to what level of clarity is there? Is it one of these other things that needs some clarification? And that brings to the third question, does this issue need some clarification because of the culture that we live in, because of the government in which we have, the structure that we have, Uh, who I am as a citizen into that country? Now, let me take you back to these clear issues that are kind of the the three big issues that Christians really press on and, and kind of hold the ground on. Let's think about these real quick this morning, abortion, gender identity, and marriage. These, I think, are really clear in Scripture. Let me just give you kind of a real quick rundown of these three. Uh, The first one, abortion here. Uh, I recently read someone post something on Facebook that said something like this. Why do Christians get so upset about something that the Bible never talked about and then ignore everything else that it says? Now, at face value, it's like, oh, good question. Unless you know your Bible, then that's a terrible question because that means you don't know anything about the Bible. You haven't really read it. You don't really understand what you are saying. Answer a fool his folly. Now I didn't respond, okay? So your pastor didn't do that. I didn't like hunt them down and you know pin them to the Facebook wall. But the, this truth we we need to understand about what does the Bible clearly say about abortion? Let, let me give you just some scripture references here. Genesis chapter one verse twenty six. How does the Bible talk about man? That we are made in the imago Dei. That's Latin for made in the image of God. We are image bearers of the creator. Who is? All people. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 13, do not murder. Do not murder. Murder is the taking, the unlawful taking, premeditated taking of a person's life. So then the question becomes, well, are babies people? Are babies persons? You know, there's been a lot of attempts to dehumanize babies and to call them um, all kinds of, what's funny, Latin terms, but just means it's a person. Um, They try to dehumanize a baby in the womb. So let's ask the question, well, how does the Bible talk about children in the womb? Does it identify them as people? Well, Psalm 139, 13 through 16, talks of, Children being knit together, formed by God in the womb. That God has given such care to this person in the womb. This is not a science project that has taken place and just, oh, all of a sudden we have a baby. And Now that it has breathed a breath, now it's an actual person. This is not how the Bible talks about it. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, talks of babies being people in relation to Jacob and Esau. If you know this passage, it says that God knew them as people before they were born, before they had done good or evil, which means before they had taken a breath of air, they were considered by God to be people. They were persons. God defines when someone is a person. We don't get to do that. That's not our right. That's not not who we get to be. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, talks about child sacrifices. And it's condemned all throughout Scripture. And I think today, what we have is people sacrificing their children, so to speak, to a false god. What we have in our country is this statistic, that 97% of all abortions are elected by the parents. And only 3%, or for some other reason, which means that there's only 3% of the time that it is not, I would say, out of convenience. So I think what we are witnessing and have witnessed through 65 million plus babies being slaughtered in our country has been that parents, mothers and fathers, are to blame that they have offered up their children to a false god and that false god just happens to be themselves. It's not Molech not bail. it's themselves. Now, you might hear the other, this argument too, well, wouldn't it be better for the child not to grow up in poverty? Yeah, I don't think they should grow up in poverty. Okay, but that's not the issue. Don't, don't they, wouldn't it just be terrible if this child had to suffer through just a terrible home life? Well, these arguments are from a position of rationalism. Not from a play, place of revelational epistemology. It's an, it's an argument that's not based upon truth that's been given by God, but a truth that's been created in the mind of man. These type of arguments, they are claiming themselves to be God. to Make these kinds of decisions. Say, well, you know, wouldn't it be better if they didn't live because they'd have to suffer? Well, I think that, that was kind of the motivation for Hitler, too. You don't know the future of the child. You don't know the future of what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to take place. And for you to to reason or try to argue from the position, it's a compromised position. You're not God. Other clear issues, gender identity. In Genesis 2, 18, verses 22 and 23 as well, they talk about God's design, man and woman, that God has made us distinctly different. Different doesn't mean less than. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, tells us, commands us not to confuse genders, and then we get to Jeremiah 17, 9, that tells us that the heart is deceitfully wicked, who can know it, which means we need to deal in facts, not in feelings. If we're dealing with just feelings, well, that's pretty subjective, but upon the facts, something objective that we've been given by God, clearly defined by God, what is male, what is female, these are clear, and so we need to be gentle with people and their feelings, but deal in facts. Now, let's get to the third one, marriage. Again, back to Genesis 2, 22 through 24, God's design. It was for a man and a woman to be one flesh. In Matthew 19, Jesus speaks only in heterosexual terms. Paul writes in Romans 1, 26 to 27, he talks about a uh, homosexual lifestyle as an error or in that there's a penalty for it. And then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he talks about homosexuality as unrighteousness. Now, some would like to argue that, well, that word in the Greek, it doesn't really mean uh, homosexuality. That's just been a new interpretation of that Greek word. Okay, just go back to Romans 1, same author. How did he speak of those relationships without using that word? As error. That's how he defined them. So, I don't think there's been a misinterpretation of the Greek. Now, as Christians, we put a lot of focus on these three things, rightfully so. I think they're really clear. But also, let me push on a few other clear issues that the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that pride, arrogance, unrepentance are all evil as well. These are all clear things the Bible teaches on Galatians 5, 19 through 21, James 4, 6 through 10. The Bible speaks clearly of God's hatred toward pride, toward arrogance, towards unrepentance. And so we can see repeatedly through the history of Israel, through the Bible, uh, other nations, Babylon and others, that a king or a leader that is arrogant, that is prideful, that is unrepentant, they can lead to a devastation of the empire, just as bad as unbiblical policies. But we need to examine, examine the track record of politicians, of leaders. We need to examine what they're saying, also what they're not saying. We need, we need to see what are they condoning, what are they condemning. And just because someone's being boisterous, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. It doesn't also mean that they're right. It might mean that they're being arrogant. It might mean that they're being prideful. But also just because somebody's not being boisterous, not being you know loud and obnoxious, doesn't mean that they're not prideful, that they're not arrogant. We don't know the heart. Now, as Christians, we we must use our worldview, the one that has been given to us by God to speak truth to those that are in the political realm or any other government um, occupation. We need to speak to them from a revelational epistemology of saying, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. We must call sin what it is. Whether that be the embracing of abortion, the embracing of a, distort, a distorted, a disordered, hang on, my mouth will catch up eventually. A distorted view of gender and marriage, or if it is a display of pride, arrogance, and unrepentance. Again, don't forget your loyalty is to Christ alone, it's to Him. So don't applaud a politician that is acting like a fool that is acting in sinful behavior, that is embracing sinful lifestyles, call it what it is. Call it sin. Politicians, they're they're great at concealing what is true. So let me give you some things to consider. Number one, research and listen. Research and listen. This is something I think we just fail to do. We just take the headlines, we run with it, and we don't read the article, we don't deal with the the other questions that need to be asked inside of the articles. So we need to pay attention to what's being said, also what's not being said. We need to research what is the record of this person. We need to look at the patterns that they have in their life. We need to look at the patterns of, are they acting like a double-minded man like James teaches? Second thing, does this person do and say whatever it takes to win? Throwing off any kind of morality? Making deals with the devil, so to speak? Or have they been consistent with what they have promised, what they have said, or at least tried to be with their policies? Another question, are you attracted or unattracted to a candidate because of their personality? And I think this is something we need to be very cautious about because so often as Americans, we base things upon popularity, not upon policy or upon principle. We need to be very careful not to just be convinced to vote for somebody because we think, you know, I could probably hang out with them. That shouldn't really matter. Some other things to consider. However bad this person is being portrayed, it's not accurate. The opposite is true. However good they're being portrayed, it's not accurate either. What do we know about humanity? We are sinful at the core. We are are wretches. And we need a redeemer. So here's my conclusion. Not all sins are the same as they affect us and those around us. If that's true, then here's a question. What is more destructive to a wider number of people? Is it the arrogance of a leader or a worldview that has a broader scope of destruction? I think what we have in front of us in this election cycle are not just two guys that are in their 70s that have very similar policies, just some slight differences. This is not the case. This has, I think, been the case in the past, but I think something... Very different is in front of us. I think what we have in front of us this year, and as we go to the polls and as we vote, it's a battle over worldviews, very distinct worldviews. There's one party and a candidate that has a track record of aligning closer with a revelational worldview than a skeptical one, which doesn't mean or insinuate that this person or party is a Christian or should be deemed as Christians. And then we have another party, another candidate, that have aligned themselves with really skepticism as their worldview. They have rejected a Christian worldview, a revelational worldview with a passion. There have been outright confessions of hatred toward a Christian worldview. And those that are running for the Oval Office have said these kinds of things. Not just in the party, but themselves. I think the comparison that we make today should not be made based upon our own selfish subjectivity of what can this person, what can this platform do for me Again, that lists a priority of what's clear and what's conviction. Let's not put those convictions above what's clear. Let's not base it upon our selfish, subject, subjective feelings, but upon an objective revelation from God. We have in front of us two major parties that cannot be more divided than I think they, they have ever been. Not simply upon policy, but upon epistemology the epistemology of these two are radically different. Let me give you a few websites that I want you to, to go to. If you haven't already voted, I would recommend that you, you do some research, you listen, go to the ivoterguide.com. They are very helpful in uh, kind of gauging where a person lands on, on the spectrum of things. Also, sometimes uh, those, um, in, for many different offices, not just the presidency, uh, they have a a questionnaire that sometimes people have filled out and they have very specific questions you can go through and read uh, and find out their answers. I also encourage you to go to Joe Biden's website, Donald Trump's website. Read what are they for? What are they pushing? What is their agenda in the next four years? What, what do they want to accomplish? What does the Equality Act of Joe Biden mean for us as a church, for you as a Christian? These are things that you should Research. Let me take you back to our verse that we opened with, Psalm eleven three. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I think what we're dealing with are the foundations, not just of America, not just of the Constitution, but the foundations of an epistemology that recognizes that God is the determiner of what is right, what is wrong. I, I believe our founding fathers, they were not all Christians, but I believe most of them not all of them, had a worldview that was a revelational one. Would you join me in prayer? God, I, I thank you for what I know we can we can read and we can see is true from your word. We can see a lot of things that are not clear. So I would ask that you would help us, help us to make the right decisions as we As we go forward with just our everyday life, uh, not just in how we vote, but how we live our life. What are the truth claims that I'm making by where I go and how I spend my money and what I do with my family? What are the truth claims that I'm making with all of those aspects of life? God, if there are places where I'm out of step with your word, if, if I'm rejecting clear truths... Lord, bring conviction. Lord, bring conviction to us as a church if, if we're doing that. Let us, let us be kind and loving as we talk to our neighbors about uh, political issues. Help us not to get on the soapbox or onto a rant. But God, let us point to truth. Let us come back to the foundations, the foundation that God has said what is good, what is evil, what is right, what is wrong. God, I think of the words of Jesus as he stands before Pilate at his trial, and Jesus tells Pilate, this is the reason why I came, to testify to the truth. Jesus died for the truth. He is the truth. He's the life. There is no other. So God, let us not get caught up into thinking that the Democratic Party or Republican Party or the Libertarian Party or whatever other party is the truth, Christ is the truth. Let us maintain that thought. Give us a grace this week, Lord, to be your examples to this world, to be salt and light. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.